Section 10 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough, by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5, The Spanish Succession, Part 2. In 1701, a new House of Commons met, in which the Tories were supreme. Portland tried in vain to defend the Partition Treaty, and in the course of discussion needlessly alluded to the First Partition Treaty, the existence of which had till then remained a profound secret. This aroused a new storm, and those Whig ministers who had aided the King in making the Partition Treaties were impeached for the share they had taken in them. But they were not actually brought to trial, for in the House of Lords they were sure of a majority. With Parliament in this temper, William thought it well to recognize the Duke of Anjou as King of Spain. But events soon occurred which showed that his anxiety had been well grounded. Louis XIV sent his own troops to garrison the barrier fortresses in the Netherlands. It became clear that the Spanish Netherlands would no longer act as a barrier between France and Holland, and that the Dutch would be at the mercy of Louis XIV. When in June 1701 William prorogued Parliament, signs were not wanting to show that the temper of the nation was changing. He now sent 10,000 troops under Marlborough into the Netherlands, and shortly followed himself to negotiate an alliance between Holland, Austria, and England. This alliance, known as the Grand Alliance, was concluded in September 1701. The Confederates felt themselves too weak to hope to accomplish much, and did no more than pledge themselves to see what could be done during two months by peaceful negotiations, after which they would attempt to recover by force of arms Milan for Austria and the barrier fortresses for Holland. But William soon found himself in a position to do more. On the 16th September, James died at Saint-Germain, and in direct contradiction to the Treaty of Rieswick, Louis XIV acknowledged James's son, James Edward, as King of England. Louis XIV was persuaded into this very foolish act by the influence of Madame de Maintenon, who strongly favoured the Stuarts. Just at the moment when it was most important to keep the English people in good temper with him, he roused all their animosity by an act which could do no good to anyone. England once more was inflamed with violent indignation against Louis XIV, who had presumed to decide who should be her king. William seized the opportunity to dissolve Parliament, and the new elections once more gave a Whig government a majority in the House. Now both Whigs and Tories were for war. It was agreed to set on foot a land force of 40,000 men, and 40,000 more were voted for the navy. At the same time, a bill of attainder was passed against the young Prince of Wales, declaring him guilty of high treason for assuming the title of King of England. About this time, William seems to have again taken the Earl of Marlborough into confidence. He looked upon him as the man who would in reality rule England after him, and as the only Englishman capable of upholding the Grand Alliance and waging war against France with success. 
He wished, therefore, to initiate him into his plans, and so be able to feel sure that the coalition against France would not fail for want of a head. Marlborough had everything to gain by following William's policy. It was entirely in his interest that Anne should be secure on the throne, and war would give him an opportunity for showing his great ability and winning that grand position to which his unlimited ambition made him aspire. The death of the young Duke of Gloucester in 1700 had increased the anxiety about the succession, for all Anne's other children had died in infancy. In consequence, a bill of succession was passed in the House of Commons in 1700, by which, in default of any issue from Anne, the crown was settled on the electress Sophia of Hanover and her children. She was the only surviving child of Elizabeth, daughter of James I of England, who had married the elector Palatine. In this way, the Protestant succession was ensured, and it became the interest of Marlborough to uphold the existing state of things. To support the restoration of the Stuarts would be to exclude Anne from the throne, and from Anne's accession Marlborough had everything to hope. William was now once more in a proud position. He was the head of a great European coalition against Louis XIV, and he was supported by the English Parliament in his desire to humble the power of France. But as he had expected, he was forced to leave his work for others to finish. Whilst riding in the park at Hampton Court one day, his horse stumbled over a molehill. William was thrown and broke his collarbone. In the wretched state of his health, he had not strength to rally from this slight accident and died on the 8th of March, 1702. The English people welcomed the accession of Anne with joy. They had never looked upon William as one of themselves. They had felt that he was necessary to them, but they had not loved him. Accustomed to the genial, familiar manners of Charles II, they thought William cold and harsh. They resented the preference he showed for his Dutch favorites, the tried friends of his youth, and were angry that he should still prefer Holland to his adopted country. We cannot wonder that William, on his side, never loved England himself inspired by one great aim for which he was ready to sacrifice everything, he had to do in England with men who cared for nothing but their own interest, men in whom he could put no confidence, since he knew that while they served him, they were in league with his enemies. Amongst the English statesmen of that day, there was hardly one capable of real seriousness of purpose, and it is no wonder that William could never learn to feel at home among them. Yet he had to use such tools as he could find, and though in his disgust at England's ingratitude he more than once threatened to leave her to her fate and to return to Holland, he was able to conquer himself and carry on his work till the end. Anne was thirty-seven years of age at her accession. She was distinguished by no brilliant qualities, her mind was dull and slow, but her intentions were excellent. She was a devoted wife and mother, and was conscientiously anxious to do her duties as queen. From her father she inherited an obstinate stubbornness of temper, which made her cling in spite of reason or opposition to any person or any idea that she had come to look upon with favor. 
her strongest principle was attachment to the Anglican Church, and this helped at that time to make her personally popular, and to win for her the name of Good Queen Anne, which she owed rather to her negative than to her positive qualities. Her troubles also had served to endear her to her people. One after another her children had died in infancy or early youth, and she had borne this sorrow with the resignation of a truly pious mind. Politically, she was attached to the Tories, because she believed that they favoured the Anglican Church. Her husband, Prince George of Denmark, was even duller than she was. He was a sluggard, who cared for nothing but eating and drinking. I have tried him drunk, and I have tried him sober, said Charles II, and there is nothing in him. Still Anne loved her husband with fond affection, and immediately on her accession nominated him Generalissimo of the Forces and Lord High Admiral. Neither did she delay to shower honors upon the Earl of Marlborough and his wife. He was made Knight of the Garter and was appointed Captain General of the English Forces at home and abroad, and Master of the Ordnance. Lady Marlborough was made Groom of the Stole, Mistress of the Robes, and Keeper of the Privy Purse, while her two elder daughters became Ladies of the Bedchamber. Lady Marlborough had often admired the situation of the Great Lodge at Windsor, and remembering this, Anne now appointed her for life to the rangership of the park, to which office this lodge was attached. The lodge was much improved by Lady Marlborough, who preferred it to any of her other houses. In the formation of the new government, Marlborough also had much to do. His sympathies were at that time with the Tories, and the leading Whigs lost their places and were succeeded by Tories. Godolphin once more became Lord High Treasurer. He had been bound still more closely to Marlborough by the marriage of his eldest son with Marlborough's eldest daughter. One leading Tory was very much disgusted at the turn things were taking. The Earl of Rochester, the Queen's uncle, was at the time of William's death Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. He had hoped when his niece came to the throne to become Lord Treasurer and have the management of affairs in his own hands. He had no desire to stay in Ireland away from the court, and hurried back to England to oppose Marlborough's influence as much as possible. Rochester and some of the more violent Tories wished to exclude the Whigs from all offices, however unimportant. But neither Godolphin nor Marlborough were violent party men. They had no wish to resort to extreme measures and drive the Whigs into decided opposition, and they carried their way in this matter in spite of Rochester's wishes to the contrary. Among the members of the Grand Alliance, William's death had excited great anxiety, but Marlborough's influence moved the Queen to show at once her determination to continue William's policy. Marlborough was sent in the end of March to Holland on an extraordinary embassy to arrange future operations with the Dutch. Hensius, the pensionary, shared all William's opinions, and with him Marlborough, during his short stay at The Hague, discussed plans and considered the prospects of the Grand Alliance. They decided that England, Holland, and Austria should declare war against France on the same day, and settled the plan of the first campaign. Anne was very anxious that her husband, Prince George, should be appointed commander-in-chief of the Allied forces, 
and though Marlborough knew very well how totally unfit the prince was for such a post, to please the queen, he tried hard to press his appointment on the Dutch. They, however, steadily refused, and the question was left undecided. When Marlborough got back to England, he found Rochester and his followers anxious to persuade the Queen and the Privy Council that it was unwise for England to take a leading part in the war. But Marlborough, by his forcible arguments, showed that no half-measures would do, and on the 4th May, as had been agreed at The Hague, war was declared. Parliament readily voted the necessary supplies, and on the 26th May, Marlborough sailed from Margate to join the army in Holland. His wife had gone with him to Margate, and he parted from her in an agony of grief. He wrote to her soon after sailing, It is impossible to express with what a heavy heart I parted with you when I was by the water's side. I could have given my life to come back, though I knew my own weakness so much that I durst not, for I knew I should have exposed myself to the company. I did for a great while with a perspective glass look upon the cliffs in hopes I might have one sight of you. We are now out of sight of Margate, and I have neither soul nor spirits, but I do at this minute suffer so much that nothing but being with you can recompense it. She was already beginning to give him much trouble by her political views. Her own sympathies inclined strongly to the Whigs, and this led her to many little quarrels with the Queen. She had no tact in managing people, but was always overbearing and interfering, trying to force her own views upon everyone. She was a constant trouble to her husband by the way in which she interfered in all the appointments he made, and tried to make him obey her wishes in everything. Marlborough, with his deep love for her, suffered much from her temper, but he did not meekly give way. He met her anger with gentle remonstrances, and by soft persuasive words tried to bring her back to good temper. She wrote to him to The Hague about some trifling appointment in such an angry tone as to make him miserable. "'I do assure you upon my soul,' he answered, I had much rather the whole world should go wrong than you should be uneasy, for the quiet of my life depends only upon your kindness. End of section 10